From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 716, Pandemic Productivity, with guests Douglas Squirrel and Jeffrey Frederick. Recorded Wednesday, July 8th, 2020. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Uh, next in the pandemic series, this is a conversation with Douglas Squirrel and Jeffrey Frederick. And Douglas has been coding for 40 years and has led software teams for 20. He uses his power of conversations to create dramatic productivity gains in technology organizations of all sizes. And his experience includes growing software teams as CTO in startups from fintech to e-commerce, consulting on product improvement at over 60 organizations in the UK, US, and Europe, and coaching a wide variety of leaders in improving their conversations, aligning to business goals, and creating productive conflict. He lives in Frogholt, England, in a timbered frame cottage, Built in the year 1450. Uh, welcome, Douglas. Uh, thanks. And most people call me Squirrel because there's lots of Douglases and not many Squirrels. Okay, you're Squirrel. I'll go there. You've got a place from 1450. You can do whatever you want. Uh, Jeffrey Frederick is an internationally recognized expert in software development with over 25 years experience covering both sides of business and technology divides. His experience includes roles as Vice President of Product Management, Vice President of Engineering, and Chief Evangelist. He has also worked as an independent consultant on topics including corporate strategy, product management, marketing, and interactive design. Jeffrey is based in London and is currently managing director at TIM, an Acurus company, and he also runs the London Organizational Learning Meetup and is a CTO mentor through the CTO Craft. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you, Rich. And how old is your house? <laughs> <laughs> my, my house is just a baby, just a, of like 150 years old. I'm living in London. Well, and here I am in Vancouver, where if you find anything 100 years old, it is an artifact. It is a relic. <laughs> you know, they, 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 we are very much the new world over here. Nothing is that old. Um, yeah. yeah, but your well, stuff works. So yeah, we, we have to it, do a lot it, over here to keep our stuff working. Well, and you find things too. Like I'm sure you have every generation of electrical wiring in that house. Uh, originally, yes. <laughs> you had, you had that whole, I got to take the old, you know, uh, tube and spoke stuff out. Exactly right. Uh, I've read your books and well done. It's really great, coherent thinking about making stronger teams and, and getting productivity out of folks. And I appreciate talking in the context of what's going on today with the pandemic still. I hope everything's well for all of you. The UK's clearly had its challenges. Yeah, we're doing fine. No. Oh, that's right. And uh, for us uh, at, uh, at at Tim, uh, company we're at, we're, we're still not looking to go back to the office anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, working remote is kind of the normal. It certainly is. Well, I had a client going back to the office this week, though. So they uh, they actually sent some people to the office. I think they're too brave. I, I told them that wasn't a good idea, but they didn't listen to me. Yeah, different places, different situations too. In, in Vancouver, we are starting to open up, and I have talked to a number of IT folks that are starting to redesign their offices to deal with a new workspace. In fact, we've done shows in this series now on what does an office look like before a va- during a pandemic, before the vaccine, when when you do want to have your team together and collaborate and be safe at the same time. It's an interesting combination. Yeah, we're definitely not ready for that in the UK, is, is my opinion. 
Yeah, I, I don't think I would argue with you, Swirl. That seems very reasonable. But this hybrid sort of work environment, we got, we shipped everybody out. We sent them home in March and April very rapidly. And, you know, I think a lot of push for the past while has been just getting working at all. The idea that we'd actually be productive in this model, like, I, I don't even know how we would measure that. Well, I'm just amazed that so many people managed to get their disaster recovery plans out of wherever they were and, and execute them. Because we used to call this one the uh, the 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 uh, zombie apocalypse because we, mm-hmm. we had one at one of my clients an early client and uh, we we had to write all the things that our clients had, had specified that we had to do and one of them was um, what if half your people are um, knocked out of commission by uh, uh, a disease and we always said oh yeah that's when the zombies come great right. we'll make a plan for that but we had a plan for that and we executed it and it all worked just fine. I think psychologically, IT people are well-suited for this situation. Like, we are all kind of used to working on problems like this. Like, it's we did make plans, and we have thought through some pieces. And so, uh, I have also noticed, like, IT folks standing up in leadership roles in their organizations more because they are part of keeping the company functioning and, and are working through these these challenges. I think that's true, especially a lot of uh, technolo- technical organizations already had kind of hybrid situations where mm-hmm. some team members were remote or people would work remote from time to time. And that was more normal, more accepted. And so they have the experience uh, in how to be uh, productive and effective in this kind of situation. So I agree that they're coming in uh, and assuming more leadership because they have more experience that the rest of the organization can learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, helping the organization continue to function. But I can't imagine how to be a manager at this time trying to do assessments for bonuses and, and again, looking at someone's productivity in a pandemic, like what's fair, what's reasonable, what, what do we quantify? How do I know when someone's doing a good job? Uh, well, my question would be, how do you ever know? <laughs> because one of, this is one of the big challenges is, especially in knowledge work, it's so mm-hmm. collaborative that it's very, very difficult to measure on an individual level how uh, pr- productive people are. We've had many discussions about this uh, over the years on our podcast. It's um, And you can go look up an article by the Poppendeeks um, on, on why bonuses don't work for uh, technology organizations, because it's tremendously difficult to measure their individual contribution. And of course, it's even worse, because you used to think you could measure by kind of wandering by somebody's desk and seeing if they were typing, or um, uh, seeing how they piped up in a meeting, or whether they, they looked like they knew what they were doing. You, you kind of fool yourself when you're in person. Actually, I think it might be better mm-hmm. because uh, in, when everybody's remote and the situation is unusual, you're forcing people to, uh, you're forcing managers to actually ask the question you did. How, how do we measure that? And right. how can we measure the performance of a team? I, my preference is always to measure the performance of a team and to measure their achievement of business objectives. Those are usually pretty uh, clearly evident. So ultimately, it's the, it's the things we produce as a team. That are the only thing that we really need to measure. And I love this idea that because we're no longer counting hours in the office, that we're really just looking at the outputs, however they get made. Outputs. And uh, if you're up on the latest uh, terminology, then for uh, Agile these days is what what are the outcomes? You know, what are we, are we as a team getting the changes in results that Mm -hmm. we're looking for, as opposed to um, merely producing work product? So I think that's right, that people are moving from, uh, I feel comfortable, I'm going to assess you based on my level of comfort, and more on what are the results we're actually getting. Right. And that's, that, that is, is interesting because it, it's something that 
could have happened at any time. But the question is, why would you do it if you're comfortable with your current way of working? And it really has taken an external force to have people reassess. And I think that's true, uh, as you mentioned right now, for managers figuring out how they're going to assess people. And of course, even more for companies to decide, you know, what's our view on remote working? Well, mm-hmm. it turns out <clears throat> when it was forced upon you, now there are people running the experiment and it, all at once people learning, what does that mean for everyone? What does that mean for, for teamwork? What does that mean for our daily work? And I think that's true across the organization. And it's uh, especially challenging, it seems to me, in people who are used to a lot of face-to-face time, where that is a, a lot of how they would typically um, define themselves as having face time, uh, and both internally and also even externally with clients. Yeah. I, I had a particularly egregious example recently where I, I had a client who, um, really, I think the pandemic brought it to the to a head, but it was evident for a while. They had about 15 developers um, in, in a lot of different places. They'd outsourced a lot. And um, those developers hadn't produced anything in eight months. Um, uh, on day one, um, I came in and changed that. So we went down to one developer, and that developer produced more in a week than the 15 had in the uh, you know, in the eight months beforehand. It's not wow. that they weren't busy. All those 15 developers were doing a heck of a lot, but it was invisible. Um, still, the um, it, it wasn't business-oriented, business, business oriented, so you couldn't see the results for customers. The mm-hmm. um, person paying the bills, the executive in charge, had been comfortable because he had regular reports of the number of story points finished and how many Lambda functions had been installed and all the other things, but he hadn't seen any results yet. He brought me in to check in a week, we had um, much different results that were really meaningful that uh, he could use in sales immediately. So I think it's, that's a particularly stark example. Not many of my clients involve quite that level of clear out and uh, and uh, and change, but it's certainly the kind of thing that I think the pandemic is bringing into sharp relief. Suddenly, you can figure out. Wait a minute, I was comfortable. I shouldn't have been. Yeah. It, well, and and nobody's comfortable right now. So I think we're scrutinizing things we took for granted a lot. So yeah, the bonus model goes away. This is not a this is not a, the right way to go about things per se, and, and at least not unless you're looking at it collectively. It almost it feels like I need to rewrite the metrics for my my teams that I, I have to think about all of them differently. What what are good things to measure? What what shows a team functioning well and and turning out stuff that's valuable? <clears throat> I, I really like the. Um approach a lot of people take is a sort of a scientific method approach saying, are we able to predict what we're going to um, be accomplishing? And um, so this is very clear in, in a product world, which is where I spend most of my time. And we can say, <clears throat> we're developing this product. What as uh, our expectation of what the change it's going to make in terms of say user behavior. So mm-hmm. we can measure what our users currently doing in the site. We make this change we have a prediction about what users will do afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then does that happen? Uh, what's interesting here is that any given experiment like this, um, the experiment doesn't fail. The experiment generates information. Right. W- what becomes valuable is how do people, um, do, do you see lessons being learned? Do you see those lessons being applied? Or do people simply cycle through and do another experiment, quote unquote experiment? But 
actually not look at the result. <laughs> One of the biggest dangers is when, when, when you start calling it a failed experiment, when you say, uh, hey, this, this um, didn't work, we didn't get the, the, the result we expected, users didn't buy more, they didn't uh, uh, get a faster uh, login time, whatever it was, and you call that a failed experiment and you make it bad. I had a client right. where they were uh, they had they had adopted that philosophy, and so you were punished for your experiment not having a, a, a successful result. And of course, no surprise, nobody was doing any um, experiments that led to yeah. uh, failures. It was too dangerous, so they did very safe experiments, which didn't cause them to learn anything. Um, part of the solution, of course, is to uh, uh, redefine that and say, well, we have a successful experiment here that has a negative result. That then we're going to try another experiment. We hope it will have a positive result, but we learned from the one with a negative result. But I, I've got to imagine the only failed experiment is one that pr provides no results. Mm -hmm. That's right. It, it generates no data. And certainly those happen. You mm -hmm. have people where they haven't considered experiment design. So, and this could be uh, in any sort of discipline. This doesn't, is not limited software. This could be happening in, in people who are doing things uh, even just internally. You can say, we're going to change our process and will it generate a better result? Well, what is it? Have you designed it? What are you actually measuring? Mm -hmm. And this comes back to the idea of, well, what is our, what is our work product? How, how are we adding value day to day? And this comes back to the, the change that the pandemic has made. That's a question that surprisingly a lot of the time isn't asked when everyone's in the office. They're so comfortable with the dynamics in the office that there's less focus on, are we actually getting the outputs that we expected? And there's more focus on sort of compliance with norms. Are, are people doing what we expect them to do day to day, as opposed to are people generating the results we expect? Now that we can't see them, yep, they're in the office at the time, they're, they're sitting in their desk at the time I'd expect, they show up at all the meetings, they look busy. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, no. they're finishing a lot of story points. They have a nice burnout mm -hmm. chart that shows that they're they're moving ahead. The the arrows are going up, right? And and that can make you feel very comfortable, which is a very dangerous level of comfort to have. As my client found out, who discovered they weren't getting anything done. Yeah, well the the economic downturn that's a byproduct of this has got to show some changes as well that suddenly our priorities are very different. What makes this company money? Uh, I think it's possible to spend a lot of time building software that doesn't actually have any direct benefit to the company, but still ticks off a lot of story points. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to uh, ignore the experiments that would tell you what the how the situation has changed. Because mm -hmm. if you've built a, a team that's very good at executing exactly on the plan that it already knows how to execute and just doing the same thing over and over again, that'll work great until the world changes. Yeah. And last time I checked, the world changes a lot, and it just changed a huge amount all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've all, we're all in the midst of this huge change. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that we're now evaluating all these things pushing back on these things. And, 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 and we hope building teams that are responding to changes rather than um, uh, statically executing on a, 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 an unchanging plan. There's, all, there's also a strong appeal in just wanting to get back to the way things were. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are definitely people who are just at this point holding their breath, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get through it. And, um, and they're, sort of, they're, they're not looking at this as an opportunity uh, to reassess. And rather, this is something to be endured. Right. You know, well, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to get through this and then we can get back to the way business as usual. And they're, and they're looking forward to that uh, mm. as opposed to, uh, and I think those people, there's, there's lots of problems with that. Um, they're, they're missing out the opportunity for learning, but also 
they're kind of making it a bet that things are going to get back to normal in short order. And um, so whether you can look at it uh, as I think it's bad for two reasons, then there's tremendous opportunity to, as, we, as we've just been discussing, to use this moment of reflection to say how much of what we do normally is actually value add, how much is, is worth doing um, and to reconsider what you're doing. But on the other hand, if you're so focused, if you're so attached to the idea of things getting back to normal, then you might be uh, in for a very long wait. Uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, the story of the um, U.S. Uh, ar- Army officer who was, or uh, Air Force officer who was the longest serving POW uh, veteran in Vietnam. And he was talking about who survived uh, the time in the POW camp. And he says, and the people who who, uh, who who lived and the people who died, the people who, who didn't survive were the optimists. Right. The people who said, you know, well, we'll be out soon. You know, I'm sure this will be over by, uh, um, you know, by 4th of July. This will be over by Thanksgiving. This will be over by Christmas. He says, and then Christmas would come and it would go and they would die of a broken heart. Right. And and I think there's going to be that sort of equivalent people of who are holding on like, well, you know, we're in lockdown. It, it virus, you know, it's only like a few weeks and then, oh, yep, the trend's going down. We should be back, back to normal any moment. You know, we'll be back in June. We'll be back in July. We'll be back in August. Uh, well, they might be right. They might get lucky, but I think it's uh, more likely that, you know what, we're, it's, we're not going to be back. We're not going to be back to normal by Christmas. <laughs> and yeah. those people are, are going to be uh, doing some really uh, hard thinking. I think they're really going to be in for a shock. They certainly, they're not prepared for the idea that the world is going to be uh, uh, different for a while and perhaps permanently. Yes. I think in some, in some industries, it's not a temporary change of state. If, if when all of your clients uh, uh, reconsider what they're doing, when everything around everyone around you is reconsidering what they're doing, and you're just waiting to get back to normal, that's a recipe for uh, a disaster. For failure, ultimately, yes. And gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Team productivity is more important now than ever, and Redgate's tools for compliant database DevOps are here to help. As the leading Microsoft SQL Server tools vendor, Redgate helps you and your team deliver value quicker while keeping your data safe. Join us on August 26th for Redgate Streamed, a full day of live educational content. Find out more at redgate.com slash redgate streamed. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Douglas Squirrel and Jeffrey Frederick, the authors of the, the, uh, the book Agile Conversations. Uh, which I don't think you wrote with a pandemic in mind. I mean, you really have been working on taking Agile to this level of how do we make our entire organization more productive through effective communication. Sure. And we've been working on that for, for 10 years or more. So uh, we certainly mm-hmm. didn't anticipate that uh, we'd be in this situation now. Although we did find it's especially, uh, it's a surprisingly relevant um, mm-hmm. because in the book, we talk about the theory of communication, not to improve your communication, you improve your conversations. It really helps to have some model behind it. And when we're now thrown into a world that's unprecedented in our experience, at that point, theory becomes very helpful in sort of making predictions of what you might do differently. It, because all of our experiences, which are our other alternative, suddenly don't apply. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I can't, I can't look someone in the eye over Zoom the quite way, <laughs> the same way I can look them over the eye when I'm across the table from them. Uh, I can't read their body language in the same way. No, uh, I can't even read their tone of voice. There's so, there's so many clues 
in people's physical presence that we're we're taking we're, we're just take for granted. It's just hardwired in us, and um, and now those are gone. And so, what is it that allows us to build trust, to build relationships with people that we don't meet? It's right. a very uh, different experience. The can we talk a little bit about the five conversations from from the book? I just think it's a really interesting way to think about improving communication, which I suspect was on everybody's to do list. It just wasn't a priority, and suddenly is a huge priority. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, I think it's going to be hard to get us to stop talking about the five conversations, which are. Uh, let's see if I can remember mm-hmm. them. Uh, I'm I'm worse at this than Jeffrey is. Uh, trust, fear, why commitment and accountability. I think I win the award. Excellent. I remembered them all. Nailed it. But um, (laughs) yeah, great. But um, uh, we put them in that order because you go from building trust, which is the foundation, all the way up to being accountable. That's where we started tonight with uh, with the idea of uh, um, being accountable for your productivity, being accountable Mm -hmm. for business outcomes. But you don't get to that unless you start building trust first and go through all the other stages. So the, the order is very important. And uh, again, even that much more important when it's not reinforced, when you can't build the trust by, um, as one of my clients was saying, um, as we say here in England, going down the, the pub for a few pints. Yes. Uh, that that uh, option is not available. And therefore, what do you do and how do you adjust? Um, well, the trust conversation is, is our way of doing that. Building trust remotely sounds incredibly challenging. Oh, absolutely. It's not as hard as you think it is. Uh, no, mm-hmm. I, I disagree with both of you. I think it's not as hard as you think it is, if you have the theory, because the the theory tells you that, um, and, and this is our theory, so you can you can certainly argue with us, and we'd love to hear from listeners who will give our website at the end and so on. Um, mm-hmm. So if you disagree with this, please tell us. But um, the the um, the theory sa- the, our theory says that if you have aligned stories, that is, if your story, Richard, about uh, why we're on this podcast is similar to the story uh, that Jeffrey and I have about why we're on this podcast, we're all going to cooperate mm-hmm. much better and we'll trust each other and we'll be able to work together on it. If our goal is, uh, I don't know, to, to sell our book and um, uh, make a ton of money and your goal is to find out uh, um, more about pandemic productivity, we may not be aligned. And that was going to be very very difficult for us to trust each other and to collaborate. So there are techniques you can use. There are things you can do, and we haven't got time on this podcast to go through them in detail. But uh, for example, one of them uh, we call test-driven development for people. And it's very similar to the experience you have when you do test-driven development. And I'm sure a lot of listeners have uh, or know people who Mm -hmm. have. And that's that slow, careful process of going from, gee, I think this code might work to, yes, now I'm confident this piece of it works. And now I'm confident the whole thing works. And you slowly and carefully with a lot of confidence at each stage. And you can do the same kind of thing with aligning your story with somebody else. And you can do that if you're following the steps. I found it as as easy or as difficult because none of it's easy, but it's no more difficult to do that over Zoom than it is uh, when sitting in the room with somebody. It's remembering that you need to follow those steps, slowing yourself down because your natural inclination is to say, aha, let me convince you of my idea rather than saying, ah, can you tell me more about what that means for you? And the steps help you to uh, to, to get to that stage where you can build trust uh, remotely. And uh, I've been doing it for the past few months. Uh, involuntarily uh, with clients uh, over over Zoom, and uh, I've uh, have been had tremendous success um, over and over again uh, with people I've never met, and uh, that's um, that's a really rewarding thing to be able to do. But it is a skill, mm-hmm. something you need to learn and practice. 
you need to learn. I would argue, or the, the corollary is also true, that it's almost impossible to try and build trust insisting that we get together right now. Because it <laughs> it is kind of a violation of trust. It's like I you start the first trust I have is that I am safe. And if I'm not safe because you're insisting on getting us all in the room together, th there's no ability to build trust. Well, that's right. I think it, it, that's, uh, if, <laughs> that's a, the fundamental hierarchy of needs, right? Mm -hmm. You get down there and if your physical safety is threatened, then suddenly uh, a lot of other things don't matter. You, you can't, uh, you've got to build up uh, from, uh, from the bottom. Mm -hmm. And if your physical safety is threatened, yeah, everything else is a, is a no-go. Everything's out the window. And, but I, I also think that the trust and alleviating fear, those two things may go together really well. But, you know, part of, of sharing values and being on the same page of things often will reduce fear that y your concerns are validated. I share similar. We're alleviating them together. Well, it's interesting because the, the the advantage of teams, uh, diverse teams, is that different people have different experiences. Mm -hmm. And in fact, so one of the values is when different people have different fears, that, uh, that's when you get the, the value of a diverse team. But the problem is that if, if people don't uh, trust that their fears will be considered, will be listened to, then they don't share them. Mm -hmm. And then you lose the information, you lose the, the value of the team. Um but you're, you're certainly correct that uh, when we are feel that everyone thinks the same way we do, we feel more comfortable, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and that can lead us to to have a sense of trust with one another. But the the problem is that people mistake that lack of friction for uh, a good, a strong relationship. Yeah, but a strong working relationship is one actually where you can share your differences. <laughs> Yeah, and and you can only really address those fears when you're able to speak them and uncover. And if you uncover that you have the same fears, that's great. If you mm -hmm. uncover that you have different fears, that's great. But the real value is getting them out there. And so often, in fact, people don't want to speak any of their fears. You, you just say, yep, this is a great project. Everything's going well. Yep, that sounds good. Uh, meanwhile, they're thinking in, inside their head, what's wrong with these people? This is crazy. This is going to be terrible. This is never <laughs> what, going to work. What's going on? Yeah. It's never going to work. Uh, uh, but you, you don't hear that from the people because they you haven't done the work to build the trust that what matters is not that you agree with one another, but what matters is that you're all committed to the outcome, mm -hmm. to whatever joint project you've undertaken. If you haven't built that, uh, um, then you, you're not going to be able to have people constructively bring their fears forward. And without that, you're not going to get commitment. There's no commitment if I think that your idea is crazy, <laughs> but yeah. I haven't been able to share that. Yeah, because I don't trust enough to, to But share I'd that. say it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. Mm -hmm. It's necessary but not sufficient because the um, if you have trust, you may just believe that the other person is going along with you. Hey, we have aligned stories. We work well together. We've been down the pod for pints. We know that this is going to work. And that is a very dangerous thing. We talk about a, a technique called coherence busting. It's a coherent theory that everything's working. I had a great example where um, uh, an executive team was all sitting around and everyone said what they were going to do to execute the plan. Marketing had their marketing plan, product had their uh, uh, user testing, and uh, QA had their quality. And everyone was going to do everything they were that, that uh, was uh, in line with the plan until the CEO finally said, there's just something that bugs me about this. I think we might be making a mistake, but I can't tell you why. And he was coherence busting. He was testing his theory. And every single person around the room then said, yeah, you know, actually, I didn't think it was a good idea, but you guys all seemed happy with it. So I was going along. <laughs> and the result was... <laughs> 
that we didn't do the plan because it was right. a dumb idea. And everyone in the room knew it, but no one was willing to test except the CEO. Right. The, the only person willing to, to just say, to call out the, is this an elephant? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I didn't know you'd notice. I've known it's an elephant for a long time, but you, you all seemed happy with it. That's right. I, yep. I think it's one of the powers of being a consultant, becoming in from the outside on these things often is that it's like, hey, I'm new here. Point at the thing and go, y'all y'all know that's an elephant, right? Maybe it's just me, but it sure looks like one. Can that, anybody explain that? that that's, that's a great it's example. The more successful that I've become, the more the more I uh, yeah, it absolutely is. And, and the, the more I've worked with a, a wide variety of clients, I've found that teaching them the techniques for pointing out the elephant is actually the most effective thing because then you don't create dependence. Mm-hmm. So that's what I focus yeah. on is saying, well, here's some tools you can use. Here's some things you can do. Step one. Uh, do this step two, do that. And the result will be that you will avoid this kind of uh, uh, false coherence and uh, lack of trust. And the thing, cause the idea is that people have those, they have the information that they need to act. It's, it's there in their thoughts. And there's just this gap between this, this worry that they have, these, these thoughts they have about the problems and their actions where they would speak up and they're just not sure how to go from the thoughts to the action. Uh, and, uh, when they can learn that skill, then suddenly a lot of these problems get addressed. And, and the tough thing, and, and it's it's something that uh, people in agile circles are often saying, the tough thing is that look, we kind of know what the right thing to do is. We know the culture should be like this. And you'll find people in Britain here down the pub saying, yeah, we know what the problem is. We just, if we could fix this, it would be better. If our culture was better, mm-hmm. we could do something about it. But of course we can't. And it's that fatalism that we're trying to undo with the book. So of my challenge to your listeners yeah. is... Um, if, 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 if you find people saying that, tell them, you know what, there are some crazy people that I heard on the radio the other day, and they said <laughs> that um, you could actually change your culture by following some steps. And it seems really weird, and um, I'm not sure if they're right, but maybe you should go try that. Because I'd like it to be the same as what people say about testing these days, right? So if, if you say, oh, yeah, my code's always broken, that's just how code is, somebody will say, well, you know, have you tried this thing called tests? You know, if you write tests, maybe that'll cause your code to run better. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'd like people to do the same with conversations. Uh, our team isn't functioning well. We don't trust each other. There's something we can do about it. And this does seem like an opportune time to do that. Like, you, again, you, it's easy to fall in the mindset of we just have to survive this. Don't change anything. Don't do anything. Just stay alive. As opposed to now that everything is disrupted. How can we make things better? And this is- yeah, exactly. It's that it's that opportunity in crisis, that opportunity that clearly things are not normal. Mm-hmm. So what we've normally done may not be the best thing to continue doing. Uh, and let, let's look for a different way. And uh, I think that is, as you say, it's a tremendous opportunity we, because we're, people aren't able to rely on the comfort they get from their normal routines. Right. And can start looking and saying, well, what, what does actually we need here? How could we be different? How can we be effective in this environment? And, and ideally, that leads people to develop new capabilities and new skills in themselves in the same way that their organizations overnight suddenly develop new capabilities about how to have their entire workforce remote, something right. that most of these companies had never done before. Yeah, said, or even said was impossible and then became right. possible. I, I don't want to leave the other conversations alone. I think we, we talked about trust and alleviating fear, then uh, the why, making commitments and, and making, being accountable so the why is sort of getting on the same page of why we're doing what we're doing. That's right. The sense of what's your motivation. And not only getting on the same page, but making sure you jointly design it. 
so that that's something that you do with your team. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you just impose a why from outside, that's going to lead not to internal commitment, but to maybe, if you're lucky, compliance. And what we'd like to see, of course, is people um, signed on uh, along for the journey, ready to participate and contributing, giving you new ideas. And again, that's the sort of thing that people pay a lot of lip service to. It turns out there are some very specific things you can do that are as simple as, say, defining some words that really make a huge difference for that uh, internal commitment. And yeah, these do seem to get like the building trust alleviating fears kind of go together. I build up enough trust to be able to expose and kind of have a conversation about fears and help them be alleviated. The building a why to make commitments around it seem to go very neatly together. Indeed. That, that's right. And, and because the, if I've been able to have been part of the process, um, the phrase add my own egg, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, then it's uh, easier for me to be uh, then getting to like, well, what's the uh, actual commitment? What is, I've, I've now um, um, been part of the process and can talk about what I am actually going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then ultimately that becomes a set of accountability. So the commitments and then you follow through on them or, or fail at them. However, that works, you know, you, you, either way, you're still accountable. It has to be accountable for success and accountable for failure. That's right. And the idea of being accountable for success is a really different one that people are, are not what people usually think of. They usually think about accountability as holding someone else accountable. Uh, and our, our point here is that properly done accountability is something that i do for myself like i am uh, accountable for the results for either uh for, for things went as i predicted or they they did not mm-hmm. um but no one else can can hold me accountable and I, i'm going to go and render my account and uh in, in fact sometimes i'll be rendering my account ahead of time i'll be saying you know what i'm going to i'm going to signal my intent this is what i intend to do and that idea that i'm going to be proactive here about my accounts uh, it really helps uh, team dynamic when people understand what people are doing, why they're doing it, as opposed to the idea that we're supposed to somehow hide from accountability, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep going through the motions that I'm used to. And, and uh, it's like being in, in a class uh, and you're, and, uh, you're just hoping the teacher doesn't call on you. <laughs> and that's so many people go through their days in that way where the idea that they would actually to share, uh, to, to be, to be required to share what they're doing would be a prelude to punishment. Right. As opposed to a normal element of healthy functioning of a team. And you can see why we put this one at the end of the book, because you need to have all the other conversations before you're ready to have that very high trust, potentially high risk accountability conversation about here's right. what I did and here's how I screwed up. These are the things that I didn't know. These are the things that we're bad at. Those are very threatening things to do when you need uh, more skills and more of the foundation built from the rest of the conversations before you're ready for that. It does feel, you know, I think about what different companies that I've been working with in the past few months have gone through. And it almost feels like they were forced down this path that the only way they could function with this level of disruption was to check in with folks and to help establish trust and work through some fears like they that this is what happened in a, I guess, a, a well-founded company with good intentions. They almost had to do this to be able to function with so much being disrupted. 
Absolutely. I was just answering a reporter's question. The reporter asked, what's the most important thing to do in a pandemic? And I said, if a second wave comes back, what, what, what will we need to do? And I said, well, the most important thing is make sure that your team is really aligned to the goals and ready mm-hmm. to be autonomous. And that's going to mean you're going to need all these conversations because um, that's what you were forced to do the first time. And if you plan for it, maybe you could be good at it. Yeah. Get actually better at it. You, you did the best you could at the time. And but you can do it better with more practice. Oh, that's really striking that uh, how well people can respond when there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think the reason is, is when there's a crisis, it, it solves some of the day-to-day problems that people have on the issues we've been talking about. About, yeah. you know, is there, is there a clear why? Why do we need to suddenly make it possible for the whole company to work remote? <laughs> there's no questions there's yes. no debate it's like yep it's obvious it's obvious why okay are we committed to making it happen yes now as we're, as we're working are people accountable for the work they're doing okay i've done i've done this i've done that you know how's your piece coming along the, the you naturally get the right dynamics when there's a crisis because it's so clear what the conversation is about why they're important mm-hmm. and uh, and then the the so the challenge in a sense becomes how can i work with the clarity and focus that comes from a crisis without re- requiring a crisis <laughs> to, to make us work that way. And it is possible. That is something that you can learn. And when you've achieved it, my, my experience is that it's sort of a, a, a peak state. It's a, it's a, it's the, it's like the, you can get into flow, uh, like the mm-hmm. psychology of optimal experience sense where it's so engaging because you're really focused on, you know, this thing that we're doing and how do we make it better and how do we do it better tomorrow and how we do it better the next day after that. And that can be such an engaging way to uh, go through the day uh, that when people have had it, I think they look back on, on those kinds of projects, those kind of companies, and they say, wow, that was a great team. That was a great experience. Uh, I, w- I would love to to work with, with those people again. I'd love to work like that again. Uh you're almost hinting that we may miss the pandemic at some point. Well, I think the the, the clarity of it, the focus of it, uh, that in that moment of transition, mm-hmm. I think the people appreciate when when things are that clear. Yeah, and it's it's the it's the challenge of leadership uh, and of management. And I think people generally to strive for that kind of clarity every day to make that kind of clarity routine. It's easy to drift away from that, to drift away from the sense of what do we need to really accomplish? What's mm-hmm. our real mission here? And go back to sort of, you know, paint by numbers, going back to, well, the you know, dogma. Yep, they were in on time. They look busy. I guess everything's okay. Close enough. That's right. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate this conversation. So if you look at soldiers or, or talk to soldiers who've, who've been in wars, um, there, there are some, there's some cases where look, they, they didn't want to be shooting people. That wasn't what they wanted to do all day, but they really appreciated the clarity that came from being in a difficult situation and having a, a very clear goal. And mm-hmm. uh, you find I mean, people who are nostalgic for wartime, for crises, for difficult times, not because they enjoyed the difficulty, but because they enjoyed the clarity. Yeah. And the and the tight teams that are built from that these you know friends for mm-hmm. life that, that come of those terribly adverse conditions uh, working closely together with a, with a common set of, of values and goals 
uh, very powerful. And, and you know, and the trick is, of course, to produce that without um, having to uh, uh, create a crisis every time, without a war or a pandemic. Yeah, that's uh, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I would certainly want. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate your insights here, and I encourage folks to to pick up the book and have a good read because it's it's incredibly relevant right now in terms of making your team stronger. And you can find lots of uh, additional material and uh, opportunities to interact with us and free stuff all over the place at conversationaltransformation.com or agileconversations.com. We, we managed to buy that domain as well. So come and find us. We'd, we'd love to talk to, to your listeners. Absolutely. Uh, Squirrel, Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. Radio.